invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapters 13 and 14. We'll be walking through portions of that uh, here this morning. Now, we as a church have been walking through the book of Genesis uh, through most of this summer here. And what we see is that creation, all of creation, is a house for God's name. It is God's holy temple. And then the fall of man and grasping after forbidden fruit, the murder of brother, evil intent of hearts that leads to the flood, and then to the tower of Babel. Well, these are all desecrations of that temple, of God's holy house. And that desecration is met time and again with God's promise to redeem his house. There will be an offspring of Eve who will crush the offspring of the serpent. Scripture tells that story time and again, time and again, time and again. And Abram's life is yet one more iteration of that redemption story. See, last week we entered Abram's life where we saw that God promised him a great name, a fruitfulness which will unfold throughout his lifetime and generations thereafter. And today in Genesis 13 and 14, we see that God's faithfulness to those covenant promises, his faithfulness to Abram is, is threatened, which happened last week. It happens again this week. We see that God's faithfulness is, is threatened. His covenant promises are threatened because fulfillment of those promises in this fallen world, it's always going to be met by strong opposition, which is vital, makes it all the more vital then that God's people continue to trust in the promised victory of God. I will be your God and you will be my people. So we'll enter again into the life of Abraham, the man of faith. And as we do so, will you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who is the living word. And as we turn to your scriptures now, would you open our eyes and open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might receive that which you have for us and transform us more into the image of your dear son from one degree of glory to the next. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram's already traveled through this area, and now he's returning home, if you will. A return to roots, a return to worship. See, Abram and his nephew Lot returned from Egypt to the place of faith, where Abram walked years before, traversing the land of Canaan. It's where Abram first called upon the name of the Lord in that land. We have a return to worship, a taste, if you will, of rooted home life for this nomad Abram, and a foretaste of promised rest. This is, in short, the gospel in Jesus Christ, a life established in worship, serving God in his holy house, which Genesis tells us is all of creation. But in a world of sin, conflict is always at hand. What do we see in verse 7 of chapter 13? And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock 
and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. There's conflict within the camps. There's threat of conflict from without. And conflict is always feeling uncomfortable, isn't it? It, it often feels like a distraction from what we should be doing. And yet, we see time and again that in this fallen world, conflict is just a reality. And that God uses conflict to grow His people in grace. And that growth comes if His people remain humble, if His people remain patient, if they continue to respond to His promises. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, or kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes, saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt. Lot chooses a portion that is green with fruitfulness, with fecundity. He does honor to Abram's gifted choice. If somebody offers you a better thing, it's not greedy. It gives honor to the one who gives. Abram gives choice, and Lot chooses this garden. Uh, note this. As we walk through the life of Abraham, we will, of Abram, we will see Abram's life is the model for what will happen to Israel. Pastor Dave talked about this last week. We'll talk about it in the future. But does this story sound familiar so far? A, a person or people of God have escaped bondage in Egypt who was then given riches by those same Egyptians. God's people seek to settle in a land promised to them. And then the land produces conflict as the land is portioned out and war breaks out. It's, it's a familiar story for the life of Israel throughout their heritage as well. Abram's life is very much a model for what Israel will experience, God's people throughout redemptive history. But before there's war, before there's conquest... God reiterates his promise to Abram, the promise we saw from, last, from chapter 12 last Sunday. Look at verses 14 and following. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring. I will make you offspring, your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And Abram does so. He rises and he walks. It's simple obedience to a simple command. Abram obeys the command. He traverses the land hundreds of miles and he settles at Hebron once again. And he's deepening worship in the land. There's another reinvigorated promise of God giving the land to Abram and to his offspring forever, he says. The promise to make his name great, to give this childless Abram a huge offspring, widespread as the dust. The promise is reiterated here. Abram must take hold of them, believing that someday he will become Abraham, the exalted father. And God simply commands, arise, and walk, and Abram does so. I mean, from dust, indeed, we are all created. And the dust, or the Adam ground, 
is cursed in the sin of God's image-bearing Adam dust. All of the earth is, all, all of the ground, all of the dust is cursed. And therefore, we all who are from dust, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet God promising Abraham a true and righteous humanity descending from his loins, a covenant promise for a people and a place, that our, our hope for a redemption of this world, it rests in those promises to Abram because they become our promises as well. And so here, in Genesis 13, there was conflict and strife, but, but all seems to be going well now. They've sorted things out. They've settled in their places. All seems to be going well. Crisis among Lot and Abram is avoided. Both, um, both of them will experience rest for a time. And worship is established. So we see God's promise is unfolding. When we get to the end of Genesis chapter 13, we breathe uh, just a brief sigh of relief because all seems to be going well. Chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and four other kings in the land of Cana. Verse 8, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, they went out and joined the battle at the valley of Sidin. Then verse 12, or verse 10, 11, uh, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. What we have here is a renewed conflict. Right? What was mentioned earlier is that there was conflict between Abram and Lot's herdsmen, but then there's Canaanites and Perizzites in the land, there's threats outside the land. So what's happening here, we see that four kings from Babylon invade this promised land of Abram. I have a couple of maps here, so we can show the first one. So the kings that are invading are on the far right side. This is near Babylon. Now, those, that region will become very important in the scriptures as we look at Daniel and Ezekiel, the book of Esther. That's where, that's where most of that story takes place there in exile. Now, those four kings, they, they travel over with their armies over to uh, the, 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 the Middle East here towards is the land of Israel. So the next map will show that. For a year and a half, the, as the arrows point from north to south, those kings and their armies have been going through the land promised to, to Abram, and then they come up to Sodom and Gomorrah. And who do we have? Who do we know at Sodom? That's where Lot settled. That's what we have here. For a year and a half, from north to south, from east to west, these kings have been ravishing people and place. And we come to Sodom. As the land is being occupied here and overrun by these four kings, there are five kings that then join forces to battle these nine kings at Sodom and Gomorrah. But as they are being defeated, people are fleeing to the hill country. They fall in or they hide in, in pits. And judgment has fallen upon the land where Lot has settled. In the next few chapters, we see why God's condemning that land for their rebellion. But here we see Lot is taken captive. And he is exiled, being exiled from the promised land. One, however, does escape the battle, and he flees to Abram. When all seems lost, where do you go? You go to the offspring of Eve, for in that offspring lies the salvation of man. 
he flees to the offspring of Eve. Verse 14 says this, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born into his house. 318 of them went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Sparta, they have their 300. But Abram has his 318. And these men were basically adopted into his family. They were, quote, born in his house. Abram's household. There is no question of allegiance to Abram. Along with allies, Abram pursues these four enemy kings who have taken Lot. He chases enemies to the northern border here, where then Abram divides forces to attack at night. He defeats and chases them mile after mile north of Damascus, outside of the land promised to Abram. He chases them far outside up to the land of Hobah, the region there. Thanks. You can close the maps for now. What we see here is, is that as Passover. In generations down the road, the story of Passover, God's miraculous deliverance occurs at night. And the Psalms are filled with this imagery. It says, sorrow may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Evening and morning, the new day dawns. Jesus was crucified in the dark, even at midday, in order to rise in the morning of the third day. Night is not to be feared in the Bible, but it is a time to rest in the surety of God's promised deliverance. This is what we rehearse every night as we close our eyes in sleep. There is no work to be done by man. God and God alone must sustain. And what he provides is victory, and it's victory in his grace. Verse 16 says, Then he, Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, these kings have been ravishing the land for a year and a half. Abram catches wind that Lot has been taken, and immediately he steps into action. And he's confident now, how could he be so confident that his army, 318 men, would conquer these kings? Well, he was motivated certainly by a love for Lot, his kinsman, correct? Certainly, he's got a despising of the enemy that would empower him to great deeds, of course. So at the word of the messenger, as Abram begins to strategize, hearing that these enemies have taken his kinsmen, he strategizes what he's going to do. But what do you think is echoing in his memory? Don't you, don't you imagine him years ago, maybe months earlier, week, however long it was, when God commanded him to rise and, and walk through the land? As he walks through the land and God's saying, every, you know, every step of the way, this, this is yours. This over here, that's for your offspring. This here is the land for your people forever. Abram trusts God's promise that this land will be his. No enemy can thwart the promise of God. And so Abram fights confidently. And as you walk the land in your life, what promises come to mind for you? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us. Will he not graciously give you all things? Or he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion upon the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What about this? 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Now, victory does not always look as it did for Abram and his army. And yet those promises are ours. And our prom those promises are as sure as those promises to Abram. Another thing to consider as we read Genesis and Abram's life is that, that Abram's life, it's a direct answer to Adam and Eve's sin. It's a direct answer to Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. What did our first parents do but they grasped after glory and power that was not yet theirs to have? But what do we see Abram doing? We don't see him with a hand outstretched this way, but his palm up. He believes and he trusts in God's promises, but he doesn't grasp after them. Though we can see no way forward, he continues to wait patiently. As God has recreated his own house after the flood, as he has scattered the nations after Babel, so now he works redemption, the blessing of the nations through Abram and his offspring. That redemption is an answer to Adam and Eve's sin, where now we have a man of faith who waits patiently for the Lord to give. What does a life like this look like in the land of promise? What is the foundation? Well, Abram established worship right away as he had done on his way through. And what does he do after he returns from victory in battle? What does he do, verse 17? After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the valley of Sodom went out to, uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram give him, gave him a tenth of everything. It is not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit. Some trust in horses and others in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As he returns victorious, a benediction is spoken upon Abram, attributing all success of this victory to God Most High. Both God Most High and Abram are praised by this Melchizedek. Now, who is this Melchizedek? We don't have met him before. And here he is, Melchizedek. Psalm 110 makes a big deal out of him, speaking as this one who is Lord of King David. Who would this, he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? Well, from here there's no lineage that tells us who he is, no beginning, no end to him. His name is Melchi, which means king, and uh, Zedek, Zedek means righteousness, so this one with no beginning and no end is also the king of righteousness. And the text tells us he's the king of Salem, probably precursor to Jerusalem. Salem, which means peace. He's also the king of peace. And this king of righteousness, this king of peace, he's a priest as well. A great high priest in service to God most high, whom Abram worships since his call and his obedience to that call, establishing altars throughout the land. In this section of Genesis 14 here, what we have is we have the king of peace, who is the king of righteousness, who is priest of God most high. He is the king. He is the priest that Adam failed to be. 
And he now is righteous. He now is faithful where Adam failed. And he now inhabits God's house as the faithful priest, as the righteous king. And Abram gave to him a tithe, a portion of all the spoils given wholly back unto God. Abram's life is not only one of patience and faith, it is a life of giving, of self-sacrifice. All he has is from God's hand, and Abram gives back to him. And this indeed is in part a model for our offering every Lord's Day service. We give to God out of our work week in and week out. The victory here is secured. Worship is established. And yet what we see in the next few verses is that there's a temptation once again in this garden, in this sanctuary here. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. Now, we don't have the story of Abram making a vow to God not to take any of the, the possessions for himself there. But he states that he made a vow to God, a promise, and he's to keep that promise. Now, would it be wrong for Abram to receive the spoils of war, a gift of a king and the people grateful for this victory? The spoils of war go to the victor. All Abram had to do as the gift was being offered was to reach out his hand and to grasp a just reward. Except Abram had already made a vow. Now, can you see how this story begins to guide us here today? As it would instruct the generations that were to follow Abram's life. There's a contrast between Chedorlaomer and the other kings. A way that leads to life and a way that leads to destruction. A narrow way of faithful obedience and a wide path that leads to death. Will Abram, will he trust in power? Will he trust in strength, in numbers, in possessions, or will he trust in the promises of God? Will he rest in God's promises? I mean, as restful as going to battle with 318 men are. Let's face it, there's nothing restful about that. Is he going to trust, though, that in that work, that labor, his victory rests in God alone? Will Abram eat of the forbidden fruit or continue to wait upon God to give? Will he step into God's promise and bless the nations? As chapter 12 has intimated, will he go on to bless the nations? And that's what verse 24 says. I will take nothing but what the young men of Eden and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. We see in this victory that Abram is beginning to bless the nations with the riches of this world. This is the life of Abram. But remember... Abram is not yet Abraham. The father of nations has, to this point, remained childless. His land, as we could see, is vulnerable. Nations, rather than receiving the blessing of Abram, become enemies. And certainly, Isaac, or certainly Abram could not foresee Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, let alone Moses or King David. And yet the seed line of Eve and her offspring was ever and always protected by God. And we see that in the life of Abram in Egypt and then in the land. And it was preserved through patient endurance of his saints. 
It was the covenant promises of God that sustained Abram through trial and even through temptation. And so it is and ever will be with us. I will be your God and you will be my people no matter what may come. And our trust is ever stronger than Abram's because the covenant promises of God given in Genesis 12 through 14 pointed always to a better Abram, namely Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that every promise of God finds its yes and its amen in Jesus Christ. Every covenant stipulation, every covenant promise finds its yes and its amen in Jesus Christ, who is the offspring of Eve, who crushed the head of the serpent. So like Abram, we too must walk in faith, resting in the victory of God over sin and over evil, even though we cannot always see the way. With Christ as our surety, His Spirit as our guide, the joy of His salvation our strength, we navigate trial and temptation in the hope that God indeed will be victorious. So hear these words from Romans where Paul encourages us. He said, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in, in prayer. I mean, be patient in tribulation. So receive those words here as a way of application because we're going to depart this place in a handful of moments. And we depart this place in the peace and the confidence of Christ's victory. For in Christ, the Father has given His only Son. If that is the case, what good would He possibly withhold from His people? Which means that somehow trial and temptation must work together with joy and gladness for the good of God's people. See, Abram, his life does answer Adam and Eve's fall and that he refused to grasp after but waited patiently for the Lord to provide, for the Lord to raise up. And so we too walk by faith and not by sight. We too trust that victory is won and that victory is won only through conflict. That resurrection comes only through death. And that rest is won through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Ours is a strong, surer confidence because Christ is a better Abram. He has come as the true king of righteousness, without blemish, without fault. He is the true and lasting king of peace. And he has given himself, the great high priest, the offering himself up as the once for all sacrifice. And our great high priest lives now to intercede for us forevermore. In him is God's great, final, and lasting victory. We find our eternal rest there in him, in his victory. And what is promised? What is given in Jesus' victory is a feast, a Melchizedek feast, who brings out bread, who brings out wine, Delicious portions of His grace, mercy, and love given here in this life, a foretaste of an unending feast of victory yet to come. This Melchizedek feast rests wholly on the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And this feast is enjoyed only by those who persevere in Him through all of our faults and failures, our weakness and sin, yet we rest secure in Jesus Christ. His is the victory. And his is the feast. And he gives himself to us that we might share in his death, 
that we might share in his life and that victory to feast forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us life in Jesus Christ. In all the trial and temptation and conflict, we trust that you are there with us by your Spirit in the life of Christ. Help us to persevere in faith, not grasping after, but waiting patiently to receive that which you have for us, which is in Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen.